0: Welcome to Pushing the Limits, the show that helps you reach your full potential with your host, Lisa well, Tarmaty, everyone, and welcome to, brought to you the by Now, .com. Today, before we get underway, just want to remind you, we have our eight-week long uh, webinar series. This is once a week for an hour to an hour and a half. That's going to be held from the 1st of September uh, 2021. So if you're listening to this later on in the piece, we will be doing this on a regular basis. This is all about upgrading your life and improving your performance, your health, your your mental well-being, your mental resilience and toughness. Um, You're going to learn an awful lot about your own biology stuff that you really should have known from the beginning. Um, And it's really all about upgrading your life and your potential. If you're interested in joining our little group for this, then please um, head on over to peakwellness.co.nz forward slash boostcamp and that's boost with an S. Boost Camp, um, and come along and join us. Now, all sessions will be recorded. If you can't make it live on one or the other evening, that's no problem. You'll have lifetime access to this information as well, and it's going to be a nice little community. And it will be hosted live by me and uh, Neil Wagstaff, my business partner, um, <clears throat> who is a minefield of of. of, of uh, information as well. So I do hope that you will join us for that. Um, and today's guest is a lovely lady. Now, I was contracted by her to do a speaking engagement, actually, up in Auckland to speak to a young group of gymnasts, uh, and uh, we just got on like a house on fire because we both have a similar outlooks on... Uh, Prevention, health prevention. She is Dr. Catherine Soden, and she is a gynecologist. Um, she's a really highly respected professional, and she's currently leads the gynecology services for Counties Manukau Health. It's so a middlemore. Um, Catherine has been a consultant gynecologist at Counties Manukau Health since 2004. She's also the departmental lead for the non tertiary gynecological oncology, where she's particularly interested in the management of pre malignant. Gynecological conditions. She has also a private practice at the Auckland Woman's Gynecology, uh, which you can find online at Auckland Woman's Gyni. Uh, Gyni is g-y-n-a-e.co.nz. dot and she has a, a wide range of general gynaecology services uh, and uh, surgery. So she is a, a lady who has a lot of experience. And today we're going to be talking about women's health in particular, and we're going to be talking about reproductive health. Um, we're going to be talking what uh, obesity does uh, in regards to women's health. Um, and this one's really a bit of an eye-opener. It was certainly an eye-opener for me. Some of the statistics that Dr. Soden actually shared with me, I was just like, wow, is damn scary. So really one that you need to, to listen to. And it's not irrelevant for the guys either because um, w- what happens with the woman when they're best sort of also happens for men and with other implications. So make sure you tune into this episode with Dr. Catherine Soden. Um, before we head over to the show, just want to remind you too of our longevity and anti-aging supplement, NMN, that's short for nicotinamide mononucleotide. You can check that all out on NMN Bio. .NZ and I'll refer you to the podcast episodes that I did with founder Dr. Alina Seranova who I've actually joined forces with in order to bring this down down under because I wanted this desperately for my own family and and now we have it and on that note it's just an interesting side note I've been on the NME now for about nine months I think it is um, and had huge results um, for both my my mother my my husband and I um, and I've actually managed to even reverse menopause so that's pretty um, amazing so make sure you check that out nmnbio.nz now over to the show with dr Catherine soden Hi everyone, and welcome to the show. Um, fantastic to have you here with me today. I have Dr. Catherine Soden with me, who I met recently when I went to Auckland to speak to her gymnastics club. <laughs> We're well, not yours personally, but um, you you sponsored me to come up there and talk to the young ladies there who are doing gymnastics, which was fantastic. But you are also a uh, um, a gynaecologist and the clinical lead at uh, the um, at Auckland. Uh, help me out there, Catherine. Again, what oh, county's menopause? So, um, um, yeah, Middlemore Hospital, Middlemore Hospital, and also have a private practice with a colleague, Dr. Lulu Van Eden, um, that you run as well. So, in in gynaecology, so today's discussion is going to be all around women's health and uh, what you see as some of the big problems that that our society is facing with in regards to women's health, um, and all along that line. So, Catherine, welcome to the show. Fantastic Thank to have you, you. Lisa. Lovely <laughs> to be here. Um, so, so I'd like to, yeah, go, yeah, you go for it because we were already talking prior to this thing. So let's, let's get yeah. started.
1: Well, I'd just like to talk about one of the issues facing us in women's health today. And <clears throat> it's an issue around lifestyle and a normalisation of obesity. And essentially we have an obesity epidemic and it's due to um, lack of physical activity and poor food choices and I guess a lack of understanding in the community about what is important with regards to health and movement and the importance that plays in your general well-being. But one of the things that we deal with a lot at Counties Manukau Health is cancer of the lining of the womb, which we call endometrial cancer, and also the stages leading up to that. So women don't suddenly just get endometrial cancer. It's a slowly progressive disorder that starts with a normal endometrium when a woman is younger and over time that endometrium changes and eventually it turns into a cancer. Now the leading cause of that is having too much estrogen and one of the leading causes of having too much estrogen is obesity. So what happens when you are overweight? you peripheral tissue or the fatty tissue leads to a production of more estrogen. So it's not just produced in your ovaries, you can get a conversion of substances in the fat to make estrogen. So you end up in a hyper or too much estrogen state and what that does is it essentially turns your ovaries off. And so this is why obesity is related to infertility because people don't, women don't have a normal ovulatory cycle. And it also creates a lot of um, it has a lot of effects in the body, and it overstimulates the lining of the womb. And when your ovaries are turned off in this environment, you don't produce your normal hormonal environment. So you don't produce progesterone, which is part of a normal menstrual cycle, which enables ovulation. So what happens with the constant stimulation of the endometrium? You get mutations occurring in that lining, and then over time if you continue to get that hyper environment, those mutations over time can turn into precancerous and cancerous changes, okay? Wow. And that can occur, you know, traditional teaching for us was this was a very slowly progressive disease and endometrial cancer was something that affected women over 40 or predominantly over 50. But what we're seeing in the population now, which is really concerning, and particularly in the Marian Pacific population is we're seeing these changes younger and younger and we have women we have women under 20 with endometrial cancer which oh, 20 years ago was unheard of yeah so obviously the implications of that are huge because it's a cancer and the definitive treatment of cancer is a hysterectomy where you remove the womb mm. so this takes away a woman's choice for reproduction um, you know the implications are enormous at they then become um, heavily involved in the medical system where they're subject to constant follow-up, constant intervention at huge cost to them personally and at huge cost to the health system. So it is a real worry. And we know, just to put it in perspective, if a woman has a normal BMI, her relative risk of endometrial cancer is 1, okay? And if her BMI is 30 to 35, the relative risk of having an endometrial cancer is 2.5. Wow. However. If her BMI is over 40, and we have a large number of women with a BMI over 40 in our society, and it's kind mm. of been normalised to mm. a degree, um, the relative risk of getting an endometrial cancer is 7.1. So just for people listening to that, that means you are 7.1 times as likely to get an endometrial cancer than someone who has a normal BMI, which is 18.5 to 25. So wow. that is a hugely increased risk. And a lot of these women, young women, are obese from a very early age. And so you can imagine that high estrogen state for all of that time and what it's doing to the endometrium. And that's why we're seeing a lot of women in their 20s now. And they certainly, even if they haven't got the cancer, they've got the precancerous changes. And wow. they're very when you see them and make this diagnosis, they're very allowed. Uh, it's absolutely tragic. And does
0: this also affect uh, breast cancers as well? Because there's another estrogenic cancer.
1: Yeah. Um, So, we do know that this also, the the obesity and the high estrogen states increase the risk of breast cancer as well.
0: Wow. So, um, you know, I study genetics, as you may well know, and um, uh, we are always, you know, we're looking at the metabolites of the estrogens and what, which, you know, innate pathway, genetically speaking, a woman takes, whether uh, she's got more of the 2-hydroxy, which is the more protective form of the estrogens, or the 4-hydroxy or 16-alpha, and what's, you know, we we have all three, but what she predominantly does, does that also play into the risk factor? So if we can identify... Uh, a woman who may have that tendency to make the 4-hydroxy, I mean, I've just come off a call with a lady with that particular problem. Um, is that part of the equation as well? Because then it's the more inflammatory, the you know, more quinones and reactive oxygen species and all of that sort of stuff.
1: Well, it may be, but we don't have any data around that. And that would certainly be something that would be really useful to look at. Yes. But um, we don't have the data to, to state that as a fact at this point in time. Right, okay. That I'm so aware of.
0: Okay, yeah, yeah, I mean it's yeah this and this is where it's interesting if you know, because I'm across so many different uh um, yeah. I have a, a shallow knowledge of many different things it's it's quite interesting to see and connect the dots sometimes that because one silo is in here and another silo yeah. you know is in there, um it, sometimes you you know you get to see how hey, what, what you know would those two dots connect you know <laughs> yeah, and
1: it, it may be so, I mean, are you' yeah. aware of any evidence around on that? Um so that the, the four hydroxy definitely i, I am yeah.
0: definitely aware of a lot of clinical data around um and I can't off the top of my head, you know, bring them out, but um, uh, around the endometrial and the, the breast cancers yeah. um, and the increased uh, risk of that um, and then if we also look um, at, for example, hormone replacement therapy or or the pill, the contraceptive pill and how that plays into it, um, so there's evolving data around that as well because if, if you've, you know, got the, the the more inflammatory types of estrogens and then you add in the pill or later on in life, maybe the, the hormone replacement therapy, yep. what risks. So, you know, for example, with the the lady that I was just speaking to um, has the 4-hydroxy predominantly, and that means it's, you know, for her in combination with some of her other genetic factors in methylation detox cop yep. genes, all of those types of things, not a great candidate for hormone replacement therapy because we're going to ex- exponentially increase the risk, if that makes sense. Um, so, yeah, it'd be, you know, we got good to, to, to dig into the weeds, probably off camera on on, on all of that sort of um, correlation there. But what you're saying is that obesity is a major factor. And is this because, like, the aromatase gene, the CYP19A1, is, is – is, is uh, this is the one that turns the testosterones into estrogens, if you like? Yeah, is that right. being expressed in fat tissue, and that's why you get a lot more of it when you are.
1: That's, that's correct. Yeah. Okay. So you get that conversion in the peripheral tissue of the androgens to estrogen. Right, and so the fatty,
0: and this, this is valid not just for women, though, is it? Because um, right. if you just look around in the population of our young men uh, who are struggling with obesity, they are also looking more feminized as, you right. know, um, um, you know um, gynecomastica and you right. know, love handles and yep. all of those sorts yeah, of yeah, things.
1: absolutely.
0: And that this is also playing a role with them in their Uh, Hormone situation, their hormone household. So, what can we do? Um, I mean, obviously, we need to lose weight, but you know, um, where do you think this is stemming from and why is there a tide of it now? Is it to do with? uh you know you talked about the Pacific and maori populations, like genetically from a genetic again uh, standpoint, we have a higher endomorph body type uh higher you know problems with their amylase genes their f t o genes which is their you know ability to process fat, they also have a tendency to go after the higher energy caloric dense foods than mm. other people, and there's a whole lot of genetic predisposition factors there that's right. That's right. Um, so that we, we need to be doubly careful if we have that you know ethnic background, um, and then there's the food industry. What's your take on on what does the food industry play in this?
1: Oh well, it's huge because there's um, what they call obesogenic food is everywhere, and it's easy and it's available and it's cheap and it's cheap. This <laughs> is part of the problem, and I think we've got no government in New Zealand has, has yeah. the guts to say, yeah. actually, this is not okay because yeah. we're creating a public health crisis. And one of the things that they do in some nations overseas is they remove the sales tax of fresh fruit and veggies. Brilliant. And, you know, I know in France, for example, they don't put VAT on fruit, vegetables or baguettes, or well, baguettes is possibly, you
0: know. Yeah, that, <laughs> no, that may be a or, cultural thing. Uh, <laughs> a
1: cultural thing. But, you know, no one has actually... Been able to stand up and address this at a government level. And I think that does whatever political spectrum you're from, yep. it's the same. And I think it's unpalatable from a political point of view. However, I think it would be hugely beneficial. If you are a low income family, how on earth can you afford to fill your trolley with healthy food when it costs yep. three times as much as yep. the cheap stuff? Yep.
0: I, I am and so in so agreement.
1: Yeah. And I think, and you know, we tax cigarettes, we tax alcohol. Why aren't we taxing some of this junk food? Yep, You know, it is of no benefit to people whatsoever. And it's
0: costing the country money, let exactly. alone the personal right. tragic circumstances, which are obviously the first and foremost, but it's actually costing the health system and it's an avalanche that's coming. I mean, you and I know the statistics on this. There's an avalanche coming as these young people who are now still being able to cope at the moment come through being obese for
1: 30-something years. We are looking down the barrel of a disaster. But it's not just cancer. It's things like diabetes. It's things like heart disease, as you know. And I think the current health system, as it is, with the increasing obesity in society, is probably an unsustainable model.
0: And so, Absolutely,
1: and, and yeah. we need to do something. And even if it is unpopular, so for example, taxing sugary high tech foods and drinks, yep. Yep. Um, it's got to be worthwhile. Yeah, and we have to do-
0: we have to have these discussions around. You know, like because when I go to the supermarket and I want to buy a bag of salad, yeah, <laughs> it, you know, it, it's costing me. A fortune for a few leafy greens, you know, which should be the basis of my diet, basically, you know, Absolutely. lots of vegetables. It, and, uh, and it's much easier for me to go and buy, buy a bag of French fries, you know, that yeah. are in the frozen's department. That'll cost me, you know, two or three dollars and that will cost me six dollars for something that's not going to fill me up. That's you know, right. so you know, and, and the fruits and the and the so on are, are hugely mm-hmm. expensive. So we have to do something about the basic foodstuffs that are healthy for us. And if we if if we also extrapolate that, uh, I had a nutritionist on just a couple of weeks ago um, talking about you know preservatives and additives in our food, which are uh, you know an unmitigated disaster and some of the stuff. Yeah, and and I, I was unaware even to the depth that she was explaining to me, you know, some of what the links that they go to to make the food addictive you know and so we're all getting addicted so it's not even all our fault that we're obese no it's we, not it's <laughs> this right. is the hard thing yeah you know people go well just you know take some personal responsibility and y- yes but there are predispositions there are genetic sort of factors there's socioeconomic factors at play there is cultural factors at play and then you've got the food industry that is intent on making you eat more of their foods and the exactly. chemicals that are the, that are in these foods, you know, if we just take something like MSG or, um, you know, some of these things are, make you want to eat everything. And you'll know if you have one chip, you cannot eat just eat one, one chip. Another. You will eat the packet, you know, and I know that from myself. So I try not to go near the chip aisle because if I start down that path, I know that I'm lost because I'm fighting against my biological, my ancient DNA, if you like, <laughs> in this new world with these chemicals that are going—it's it's like it's like being exposed to cocaine, you know. And sugar is as addictive as cocaine. Um, so if you start down that path, um, you know you're in trouble.
1: <laughs> oh, absolutely. And I think, and and in, in addition to that, there's also been a normalization of a high BMI and a lot of. Uh, Um, areas of society, it's completely normal to be morbidly obese. And I think part of that is a lack of education as to what the the consequences of obesity are. And I think we're very much in medicine ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. Yes. And and we actually need to put more resource into the community, into prevention. Oh, I mean, (laughs) (laughs) I've been preaching that forever and a day because... And you know, and it's a
0: limited resources, and it's a system that's grown up over decades or, or, or hundreds of years, actually. And um, you know, we need a complete paradigm shift to, to change that and to go into the prevention space. And it doesn't show immediately. I mean, we were talking in the car when we were on the way to our talk. You know, my dream to have this sort of a, a warrant of fitness one stop shop where you come in once a year, get a complete sets of bloods, your microbiome, your 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 heart checked out, your diabetes, your you know all of these risk factors we can see if there's any cancers developing we can see if you're heading towards diabetes we can catch everything before you fall off the cliff and then yes. we imagine how much we would save the medical system but it's not set up that way for a number of reasons the so way you know the way it's developed is a disease you know control model rather than a Correct. prevention Model, and then you've got pharmacological sort of pharma, pharmaceutical companies who have their own agenda, um, and it's not always incompatible. In but well, that's my my take, not Catherine's. But that's my take. It's not always compatible with health <laughs> um, because there's big money at play here, um, and and we need to at least be having discussions around this. And this is why I was so so you know excited to to connect with you because you're in the you're in the system. You you see the the limitations and the problems, and we all agree there's. Problems 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 it's just how do we attack them and how do we change this paradigm and make it more preventative and that's what you know obviously I'm in that space and trying to help people navigate and be preventative looking at their genetics looking at their lifestyle all that sort of stuff but it's not it's not sexy you know it's not sexy when I tell somebody they need to maybe eat less of that and more of the good stuff and go for a go for a run and you know get some sunshine on their eyes and you know all those sorts of things that are Lifestyle interventions are really hard sells because people do like that. Just give me a pill for that.
1: <laughs> yeah. well, there's an expectation, and it's not just give me a pill, it's give me an operation. Oh, yes. There's yeah. People come in, and they're not interested in the other stuff. They want an operation because they perceive it's going to fix their problem. But operations don't always fix people's problems problems. And yes, they have, you know, we can do operations that do amazing things and really cure people of cancer and improve their quality of life. But equally it shouldn't be the first option. I really believe we've got to look at prevention of these problems. And we we are very much focusing at the end of the pathway rather than at the beginning.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you, you're someone who, do, who does operations, you know, and you, you, there are times when you need that, but it absolutely. definitely.
1: And yeah, I love that, doing operations. But yeah, <laughs> It's not always the right thing to do. And a lot of them could be particularly in these women with these endometrial issues, um, which is my area, it, a lot of it can be prevented. Uh, Not all of it, of course. Just
0: interrupting the program briefly to let you know that we have a new patron program for the podcast. Now, if you enjoy pushing the limits, if you get great value out of it, we would love you to come and join our patron membership program. We've been doing this now for five and a half years and we need your help to keep it on air. It's been a public service, free for everybody, and we want to keep it that way. But to do that, we need like-minded souls who are on this mission with us to help us out. So if you're interested in becoming a patron for Pushing the Limits podcast, then check out everything on patron.lisatarmaty.com. That's P-A-T-R-O-N.lisatarmaty.com. We have two patron levels to choose from. You can do it for as little as $7 a month, New Zealand, or $15 a month if you really want to support us so we we are grateful if you do there are so many membership benefits you're going to get if you join us everything from workbooks for all the podcasts the strength guide for runners uh, the power to vote on future episodes uh, webinars that we're going to be holding all of my documentaries and much much more so check out all the details patreon.lisatarmaty.com and thanks very much for joining us On that point, can I ask you? Because I, I you know, um, I was uh, I just uh, out of my own life. I had fibroids. Um, I've been on the pill for years. I don't know whether that contributed to it. I suspect it may have because I've otherwise got pretty good genetics when it comes to estrogen um, toxicity and so on, um, and adenomyosis. Um, and uh, I was told when I had I had horrific bleeding. Too much information further. Public but horrific bleeding like i'm I'm talking about like you know like uh entire year of massive blood loss so I was in and out of hospital getting infusions I, I had um, birth childbirth like pains as these fibroids tried to birth themselves out of the you know out of my body and they were still stuck on the inside and so yeah. it was falling into the cervix so, so oh, I was that's
1: horrendous horrific
0: like you know like yeah. having a baby every week um, and I was in and out of hospital and I was told that if I did not have a hysterectomy I would die I was, you know, it was that bad as far as, you know, the anemia, I could hardly get my head off the pillow at certain times um, and then I, I absolutely had to have a hysterectomy. Now, you know, I'm very stubborn <laughs> <laughs> and I said, no, I am not having a hysterectomy because <laughs> we were still trying to have a child at, that, at yeah. that, that point and we are actually going through IVF now so I was not going to have a hysterectomy so I I actually went after one specialist after the other and uh, looked at what was happening I had an MRI done and I worked out that there was one pedunculated fibroid that was the size of a grapefruit that had actually fallen into the cervix, and that was what was actually leaving the whole thing open and you know um, causing the most trouble. And so I asked for uh, an operation just on that, and I and I couldn't get it, and I couldn't get it, and I, eventually I, I you know I'm very persistent, I got it. <laughs> it was a ten minute operation. Yes. And I, I did not have to have a, ho- a whole hysterectomy, which, you know, is is a very invasive, and very um, psychologically and physically uh, a major thing to go through. Um, and so I, I managed to preserve my chance of having a baby. You know, we're going through IVF now. Um, Fantastic. Yeah. But, but only because I'm very bloody stubby. I went through a year of hell, though, because I wasn't, you know, not prepared to just go and get it whipped out, which was basically... The the answer, um, and in my case, I was lucky that I, I came across this. But I, I, I tend to think that, and this is not backed up by any science. But from what I'm seeing is there's so many hysterectomies happening. Are we doing these too often in general? What's your take on that? You know, is uh, is, is, is well, this unnecessary?
1: That's, that's certainly, a lot of hysterectomies are warranted, and but we're doing a lot for abnormal endometrium. We're doing them a lot for cancer, and at that point, we have to do them, but yeah. that the progression of the changes could be prevented at an earlier stage, and we know this. For things like fibroids, I think your fibroids, Lisa, were probably bad luck. Some people get them, and there's not a lot, you know. And I don't think that would have been driven by the, the <laughs> pill or, done, or anything. Or the pill, yeah. no. Yeah. And but I think we've always got to look at the patient as a whole person. We've the less invasive cure the better. And it's very easy just to jump in and do a hysterectomy and say this will fix you. Well, it will fix your bleeding completely, but then it wasn't actually what you needed at the time. And the fact that you did discover there was another option is fantastic. And I think we need to very much individualise care, look at where the woman's at in their life, look at what they want and try and match the two together. And I think sometimes we don't necessarily um, do that particularly well as a profession. Um, particularly in a system like the public system where you've never met the patient before they come in and you have to get to know them in a 20 minute time slot, which is really difficult. (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine. And I can imagine people go away with their head spinning with all this information we give them and, probably sometimes do feel backed into a corner because it's too much in too short a time frame, And I guess that's one of the luxuries you have in a private practice is you do spend more time with these patients. But we have no option in public because we have this massive workload. Yeah,
0: lack of resources. And, and a lack
1: of resources. And that's why um, the more people we can keep out of the hospital, the better, because it means we can deliver quality, personalised health care and the that need to come through.
0: And it also means that, that the more we go into our own research and go and try and understand what's happening to our bodies, you know, and there, there are there are pitfalls in that, as we all know. Um, yeah. and it depends on your ability to research and That's you right. know uh, not all the information out there is correct. No, and you need to know where you're getting your sources from. And okay, I'm I'm a researcher, I know. What, yeah. what I'm looking at. Not everybody will know what they're looking at um, and nor should they have to, you know. Um, right. But it, it, it's still, uh, it, it, the more you can educate yourself, the better so that when you get that 20 minutes in the public system, yeah. you've got the questions to ask. You know what you're going in for. Like, I, I, do, I do sometimes think we spend more time researching the car we want to buy or the trip that we want to take than we do about our own health because we've outsourced it. In our heads, we're told that the doctor will take care of it and you just go to them and they should know everything to do. And that's just not reality. That's not. Uh, yeah. They, they, and they have limited resources and limited time and um, limited ability to stay up with the latest stuff because, you know, like how do you do that on top of that and that and that? You know, you're only human. Um, so that's where I see, like, this is where we can be proactive as people and go, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to research this. I'm going to look into that. And I'm going to go and I'll, I'll have my questions ready and i'll and then I'll analyze, analyze and I might go and get a second opinion or I might uh, yep, you know absolutely. go go and make these because these are major decisions for for, oh, for, for huge women. huge
1: huge decisions yeah you know, and and they, people don't understand too that again the the safety of an operation is um you know there's there's risks with every operation, and those risks increase with obesity so again oh, yes. it's coming back to obesity for example um you know they haven't we know that If you have a high BMI, you've got an increased risk of a wound infection, you've got an increased risk of bleeding, um, and you've increased risk of multiple complications, including when you do a hysterectomy, you can damage organs, other organs inside the body, like the bladder, the bowel, or the ureter that goes from the kidney to the bladder, and all of those things, because the operation is much more difficult in an obese patient. And the other thing is, this is also the ability to be able to... um, do surgery for the number of women on the waiting list is also impacted by obesity because, for example, if you have a normal BMI woman, you should be able to do a hysterectomy in an hour. Oh, wow. If you have a morbidly obese woman, sometimes these operations can take four or five hours, so you can imagine what wow. that is doing to our ability to be able to process offer care people, and process yeah. the number of women we need to be able to process. Wow, I had no idea that there was yeah. the case. I don't appreciate that fact. And then we have surgeons that need to take time off because they've got um, musculoskeletal injuries because these operations are so technically challenging. Wow. See, I don't think people understand. No, I don't think people understand that either. No, I certainly didn't. Yeah, people have got no no idea. So we can, if we have a morbidly obese patient, sometimes they're the only patient on the operating list. And so you've got all of these people waiting months, months, even up to over a year for an operation. Wow. And so this is another reason why the health system with, that's increasing obesity and the obesity epidemic is an unsustainable model. Absolutely. So we
0: really have to get on top of this obesity because this is not just talking about women's health here. This is talking about cardiovascular health, diabetes, Alzheimer's, all of these things that impact. Um, You know, my husband's a firefighter and they have noticed like in the, you know, like he's been in there for 25 years or 20 20 years in the fire brigade and Mm five in the Air Force. Um, he, he, they are constantly now getting called by the ambulance to come with help, to help with hugely morbidly obese people. That The ambulance crews now have to have specially made beds. They need the firemen to come and actually, and it will take, you know, yeah. six to eight people. They've had to take down bloody walls and houses to get people out. You know, this is getting to the point where it's just tragic for the person, and it's so tragic for the system. Said. Yeah. yeah. And it's, you know, and and, and the resources just alone in that, you know, that you've got six firefighters coming in to help the ambulance staff. That means those firefighters are not available for other things. Those ambulance people are not available for other things in order just to help someone get off the floor. Mm. You know, this is the type of thing that they're seeing. Um, and, 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 And this is where the The food industry, I think, really has to take you know so a, a really good look at what they're doing, and you know why are we allowing um, some of these uh, things to be promoted? You know, like we don't have tobacco sponsorship anymore for a reason. Yeah, that's right. We shouldn't have some other, and I I don't want to pick on any one particular company, but this is a discussion that needs to be in the public forum, and how about we don't let certain things promote in our sport because yeah. those are the, what the young people are looking at, their role models, doing, drinking, eating certain things and yeah. thinking that's Absolutely. what I want to be. So yeah. I'm going to go and do that. Um, where you draw the line, God knows, I don't you know, want to get into the weeds on that. But, hey, we need this conversation because it's going oh. to, you know, people are dying earlier uh, and, and, you know, Absolutely. We're, we're increasing our lifespan because of the knowledge and the technology yeah. and the medical and all of that. But on the other side, we are actually dying earlier because of the di- the, the diabetes, the Alzheimer's, rest, the cancers, and, yeah. and that connection between cancer uh, and obesity. I don't think many people make.
1: I don't think they appreciate it either. Um, and just, I just want to give you another figure about the endometrial cancer to put it in perspective. So there was a study at Middlemore that in two thousand and twelve. Um, and they looked at the age standardized incidence of endometrial cancer in Pacific island women in the county's catchment area so in 1996 the um age standardized incidence Of endometrial cancer in the New Zealand population was 1.9 per Mm 100,000. In 2012, in the New Zealand population as a whole, it was 20, it had gone up to 24.2 per 100,000. So that's increased by, you know, a factor of 20. Mm. But in the Pacific population and counties catchment, the age-standardised incidence was 46.06 per 100,000. So this is something that we, I feel really passionate about, that we need to educate young Pacific Island women what is happening in their community. And I think also Pacific Island women are pretty stoical on the whole, and they tend to normalise abnormal uterine bleeding. And wow. I think we need to be out there in schools, GPs need to be them tele- It's not normal to bleed so much that you have to wear nappies. You need to have it investigated because we can, from a um, even from a bottom-of-the-cliff perspective, um, as us in the hospital, we can give them progesterone, which they're not producing when they make themselves anovulatory with the hyperestrogenic state, and yep. that can reverse these changes when they're in the pre-cancerous wow. state. Yep. So we can, even if they do nothing with their weight, which is not the ideal solution, this is ambulance at the bottom of the cliff medicine, mm-hmm. but, but we so- can prevent them progressing to get an endometrial cancer by giving them progesterone. And so I think early intervention is critical. And will I, that, you know, yeah. would that, would that help also with their fertility and all of that sort of stuff as well? Well, you're very unlikely to have a baby if you've got an abnormal endometrium. So you need to normalise it. And because we struggle with the weight loss issue, yeah. um, we can give progesterone. And so we are normalising some young women's endometriums and they are able, after a period of time, to stop that progesterone and try and get pregnant with some success. There have been some studies that have shown, even with an endometrial cancer, once you start treating that endometrium with progesterone, that you can get pregnant. Well, wow. Ultimately, though, unless they lose weight and change their lifestyle, as soon as they had the baby or um, stop taking that progesterone over time, it's going to come back again. The only real way to get a definitive Treatment of that abnormal endometrium is either remove the risk factor, which is lose yep. weight, or in the end, they do need a hysterectomy. Wow. And, and so, are you seeing across the board falling fertility
0: rates? Oh, in, absolutely. In yep. young obese women. Wow. And this is a huge portion, not just with the Pacific Islander, Maori population, but everybody. Right. Like on average, our, 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 our BMIs are just going through the roof, aren't they? That's
1: correct. Well, I mean, I've got some like, even back in 2013, there was only 34% of the population was a healthy weight in a normal BMI. And wow. I suspect when the more figures that are coming up for the Ministry of Health will show that over time that's just going up exponentially.
0: Okay, so this is not just an aesthetics thing and this is not just you want to look no. good on the beach. No, no, no.
1: This <laughs> is a health, a public health crisis. Health crisis.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and you're ringing the, the alarm bells here, and that's that's this is really really good. Can you explain? Like I've studied a little bit on the metabolic approach to cancer, um, so this is what we're talking about here, basically, isn't it? Um, the metabolic approach to cancer, well, it's a bit more involved than in that, but and I'm certainly no expert on it, but it's basically. Um, if you've got cancer starving the cancer growth through not having high carb diets but having a more sort of a fats and protein based diet and, and and not having these is does that play a role have you researched it all you know versus the genetic approach the the you know chemotherapy approach have you had a look at that sort of data at all
1: Um, I'm not aware of a lot of data on that. I mean, I think uh, I I certainly think it's an area that needs development, and I think it's really important. I mean, at the moment, the with the information that we've got, the oncologists do offer the chemotherapy approach or the radiotherapy approach, or we offer the surgical approach as a first line because that's what we're familiar with with the data. But I'm not saying it's necessarily the be all and end all. And I think there's a lot more we can learn about that. But I think often once you have that cancer, it's much more difficult to reverse a cancer once it's occurred than preventing it in the first instance. And I think that's really where we've got to focus, is looking at the lifestyles to prevent these things occurring because they don't happen overnight. They are generally a slow progression that we're not aware of until we have a cancer. But it's been, you know, you have those pre-malignant states that slowly develop for a long time.
0: So I think, you know, what we're doing here at least is at least initiating the thought in people's heads that being obese is increasing your risk of of cancer, endometrial cancers and breast cancer, is it also, are you aware that it's other cancers
1: as well, or is it just these ones? Oh, no, I think it is. There are other cancers. I mean, I don't have the data behind a lot of the other mm-hmm. ones, but um, off the top of my head, breast is not my specialist area, but I, yeah. I think from obesity, you're increasing your relative risk of breast cancer by three, approximately three times. But, um, you know, I could be corrected by the, by the breast surgeons on that. But it, it's certainly we know it plays a part because the estrogen results in a proliferation of breast tissue, and the more you get that proliferation, the more every time you have cellular changes, you increase that risk of a mutation occurring. And then, of course, we do know that there are the genetic cancers, like the the BRCA, which Mm -hmm. increases the risk of breast and ovary, that certainly contribute, and the Lynch syndrome, which is a genetic, where you have bowel and endometrial and Um, So there are those factors. So some people are at a genetically higher risk of getting a cancer. And even if they have an absolutely pristine lifestyle with a perfect diet, some of them with their genetics will get a cancer. So not all cancers are preventable, but we can certainly, we know that there are, particularly with these estrogen-dependent cancers, we can significantly reduce the number of women with cancer by correcting the lifestyle.
0: Brilliant. Brilliant and um, if we just split the conversation um, just a little bit and go in the direction of general health for women's health and, and what would you like to see a young woman getting access to education around their whole in, uh, reproductive cycle and how it all works. Because no, when I went to school, we were told how to use pads and tampons. And that was about it. You know, like <laughs> nobody told me, hey, your estrogens go up and this and the, you know, the follicular phase and then the luteal yeah. phase. And the, none of that was ever. And, and if I talk to a lot of my girlfriends, they still don't know the basics.
1: No, I think the basic knowledge is very poor and I think we, we do need better education and I mean a logical place to do that is at school and I don't think that that exists and I know my daughters at school what they got taught was was very very basic, <laughs> basic. and yeah. they got taught nothing about because it's also um, it's seen as politically incorrect to discuss Obesity, But it's not politically incorrect. It's factual and it's a crisis. Yeah. And we need to stop um, pussyfooting around it. And I think that young women need to be given the facts about the reproduction, that being overweight will increase the likelihood of being infertile. It will increase their risk of certain cancers. It will increase the risk of diabetes and dementia and heart disease and all of these things.
0: Absolutely. And I think, yeah, like, like not being like, we're not, this is not about not accepting different people in our society and not being inclusive. And that's not, not the issue, all. what we're talking about. This is straight. These are the facts on the medical side. This is not healthy to be this way. Right. And therefore, you know we, we need to give people the education and the support around yeah. changing the the behaviors. Uh, and 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 we're not saying this is people's fault that they're there. it's not God enough. knows that the food industry and 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 just the way our advertising is set up and that the food is on every street corner and, and our ancient DNA. We 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 we've come from cavemen. I saw, you know. Talk about this all the time. Our, our DNA hasn't kept up with the with the pace of change in our in our environment. You know, right from things from like electric light to the to the blue lights that we're getting exposed to at night time to the to the food that's on available 24 7 where it used to be you had to get up go out and hunt or gather or do something in order to get breakfast you know yeah. <laughs> it wasn't so you, were moving. you were moving all day yeah. outside in nature and when I when you when you start to adopt some of those lifestyle changes within the realms of what's possible for you but that means for me if I'm stuck on the computer all day I am uh, I, I change between a standing desk and a sitting desk in between I'm doing press ups and sit ups and I'm Going for a walk, so I'm getting sunshine in the early morning, all of these tiny little ritualized habits that I've developed in order to keep myself sane and to keep myself relatively healthy, you know, and to to be proactive in that space. So I think, you know, that's the discussion that we need to be having more.
1: Yeah, I think so. And there's very little resource. So the health system as it is, is a vast amount of the health dollar is spent in the final years of someone's life, and Mm -hmm. very little resource is put into patients in the early years and particularly in the community because of the way our model has developed. And something you just touched on then, Lisa, that's really important is also to keep you sane. Well, you know, mental health is just a huge oh, part of yep. someone's wellbeing. And Absolutely. The diet and the exercise and the movement is hugely important to that. And also, you know, we've, we've learned in the last few years that a Large amount of serotonin is produced in the gut the gut, and mm. if you are eating a, a sort of an obesogenic, horrible fast food diet, it affects your production of serotonin, which again pre- affects your mental health, depression, and, and all of that. So that's it's right, good. and that yeah. even affects you know, if you're depressed, you're less likely to go and take you know, choose healthy food. You le- and so it's a self vicious cycle, Sorry. yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. I think we've also become very siloed in our healthcare model, and this is where the importance of GPs and people in the community, is we need to look at people as a whole. And, you know, if you look at one isolated area like we do in hospitals and we're all super, super specialised in one little thing, um, we're not good at actually looking at the whole person because we have such a short time frame to see those patients. So this is a real important role of GPs um, and other people working in the community. And, that's,
0: and this is where I see the greatest growth happening and the greatest
1: development happening
0: is with you know people like, like what I do and and health coaches and people that are lifestyle coaches and things so that can important. actually because we just don't have enough doctors and we just don't have enough money in the system and this is a way that we can bring in allied health professionals if you like to actually give people the time of day and it's actually perfect. go through different testing regimes and everyone has their specialty you know not mine. Mine are, but you know, I will go to my chiropractor, my naturopath, my herbalist, whatever you know, area, and all of these things, these people can help in this conversation of. Being in that preventative space so that you don't even get to the hospitals, hopefully ever. Yeah, you and know, that's like that's important. my goal—to stay out of the hospital.
1: It <laughs> should be everyone's goal. <laughs> yeah, we don't want—we don't. None of us <laughs> want to go want there. To the hospital, unless you have
0: to. Yeah, but, and you know, that's that's a, like with the with the with the with the exercise and the hard parts of all of that, and and people, oh, I don't want to. It's not pleasant. Why should I do it? It's like I tell you, as someone who's rehabilitated someone from a massive massive of aneurysm. And stroke that path back is mm-hmm. horrific way more unpleasant than going to the gym going for a walk going and doing those preventative things and eating nicely than trying to rehabilitate somebody
1: yeah, yeah absolutely and I'm sure and, and you, you can speak to that from your own experience very 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 much so so I'm in that space
0: Yeah, Catherine you've Dr Catherine Soden you've been absolutely wonderful today thank you for sharing your insights and being so candid and and open and having these conversations because only when we actually get to talk to doctors talk to medical professionals the people in the public health and open up these conversations can we get some good positive change and it's not a us versus them you know I don't ever want to be in the us versus them space because it it has to be a collaborative effort if we're going to improve the health of our nation and, and our world, you know. So fantastic to to have you have had you on the show today. Thanks.
1: Oh, well, thank you very much for the opportunity to speak, Lisa. It has been a pleasure to meet you and a pleasure to chat again today. And um, I hope that it can help raise awareness of the issues surrounding women's health and what we can do. And um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Oh, and whereabouts,
0: Catherine, if someone wants to reach out to you, uh, are they allowed to? And can, and how would they do that? Or even for your private practice, where would they find you?
1: Um, so um, they can find me at um, sorry Z. Okay, um,
0: gynecology.co.nz I'll put that in the show notes.
1: Yeah. And um, I am... through Counties Manukau, it's a little bit more difficult to reach me that way. Yes, of course. um, If people want to reach me through Auckland Women's Gynaecology, then I can point them in the right direction if they want to come through the public system. Brilliant. Absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for talking to us today, Catherine. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Lisa. That's
0: it this week for Pushing the Limits. Be sure to rate, review and share with your friends and head over and visit Lisa and her team at lisatamati.com.